You're listening to the podcast. So there I was. This is episode 48 with Carrot. What a great storyteller and fellow naval aviator. Right. Funny, fast, great. Naval Academy graduate, Sir Grad, another Sir Grad, and an S3 uh, Viking. And kind of a good luck charm. You wanted to be in his <laughs> squadron because, in spite of some tremendously horrific mishaps, everybody seemed to walk away. Which, which is truly a miracle. It, it really is. And he has, uh, he was an LSO, landing signal officer, has uh, some pretty terrifying stories of, uh, well, ramp strike, yeah. having to jump over the side of the ship. Yeah, exactly. And that's where he came up with an idea, which uh, led to the title of this week's show, Cat Shots and Orgasms. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great story. You just got to listen because uh, we, we couldn't even begin to do that one. Justice. Nope. Can't do it. Not going to, not even going to try. So here he is, folks. Here comes Carrot. Sit on the ejection seat handle. Don't do it. On the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm not that. There I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly. So there I was. Which is how all great aviation tales begin. You're listening to the podcast, So There I Was. Repeat here, coming to you from New Hampshire today, joined by my co-host, Fig. Hello, gentlemen. How you doing, Fig? I'm coming to you live. Well, I guess we're recording <laughs> from, from Denver, <laughs> Colorado. <laughs> and it's a pleasure to be here. We have with us fellow naval aviator. Carrot. Welcome, Carrot. Well, thank you, gentlemen. And I use the term very loosely. As you should. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta stop swearing. There's gentlemen in the area. All right. <laughs> so Carrot is a, a former American Airlines captain. Uh, we can say that because they can't fire you now. <laughs> Though they tried. <laughs> yeah. Unsuccessfully. <laughs> and Navy S3 pilot. Welcome. Well, thank you, so sir. We, uh, we're super glad to have you. How, how is it you wound up, uh, A, interested in aviation, and B, uh, flying uh, Navy airplanes? Well, uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, in Prairie Village, Kansas, in the 50s, had two Braniff pilots in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And my dad was an ex-Army colonel in, uh, as a communications officer in a fighter squadron and fighter group uh, in World War II. And uh, it was just a neighborhood that uh, had a lot of aviation stories in it. When we were kids, when the neighbor across the street would go down to downtown airport in Kansas City to start his trip for Braniff, the kids would all pile in the car. At the time, everybody only had one car. And mm -hmm. uh, while he was in flight planning, et cetera, we'd go out to his DC-3 and climb in the cockpit and play bomber pilot over Germany. Oh my gosh. And so, and that, and the, some of the guys at Dickie, at Richards Gabauer, which everybody calls Dickie Goober out at uh, mm -hmm. South of Kansas city, uh, was in a fighter base, uh, air transport command base. And some of the guys in the F 100 squadron, and then they transitioned to 102s and then 106s were, uh, at the begin with in the early fifties were guys my dad had been in the service with. And we'd go out there for barbecues and uh, watch them fly fighters around. 
And in fact, the first time I ever heard a plane go to break the sound barrier was at an Armed Forces Day live air show at Dickie Goober. And then that Super F-100 went by at about 50 feet going Mach 1 plus. Everybody <laughs> watched him go by, and then that sound wave smacked you in the back of the head when it, when it finally got there. That hurt. Yeah. Well, well, of course you were interested in aviation at that yeah. part. I mean, who the hell wouldn't want to be? <laughs> yeah. So I, I just grew up wanting, I read everything I could on in history on World War II and World War I flying. And uh, I set up my life so that I could be a naval aviator. And that in all the reading I did, I figured anybody can land on a 10,000 foot runway, but trying to land on a moving target that's only 440 yards wide, the landing area, would probably be a challenge. And therefore, you had to be a better pilot than the guys that couldn't hack that. The gauntlet. Was it that those gringos said, how hard could it be? You never have a crosswind and you got a wire to stop it. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah right. Don't have to flare. But I don't want to live with 300 guys. Right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. So you've heard them. Yeah, certainly oh, did. Man. Oh, my that's gosh. That's awesome. That's a oh. funny song. Right. Oh, it is. Uh, so well, that explains it. What was your commissioning? Yeah. Uh, How'd you get commissioned? I, my dad recommended at the beginning, I wanted to be a, uh, enlisted man because everybody glorified how, you know, all the enlisted guys in world war two. And my dad, who was an officer said, Hey, if you want to go in the service, the best way to go as an officer, because they live a lot better than the people that aren't officers. And that made sense yeah, to me. Do. And after I decided I wanted to be a, a pilot and decided the Navy was a better way to go, I uh, applied to our congressman, the third congressional congressional in Prairie Village. Uh, it turned out was a man by the name of Wynn, who happened to be a fraternity brother of my father's at uh, wow. Kansas State. Cool I applied for a, uh, a Naval Academy appointment. I got one of six nominations at the time. I don't know if you guys know how the Academy worked at the time. No. Every congressman and senator could appoint a person, one person. And if that person was qualified, the Academy had to take him. Or, and if you did that, you had one set of friends, family that would vote for you. Or you could not, okay. you could nominate six candidates, let the Academy choose the one they wanted. And you had six sets of parents six sets of friends, et cetera. Right. And it was a lot more votes. Right. So I was one of six. And in April that year, uh, well, let me back up. And, and playing football at Shawnee Mission East, in our last game, uh, Bird Dog for West Point, Bird Dog is a scout that watches high school football players, uh, saw me play and asked me if I was interested in the academies. And I said, yeah, but I at the time, I had the nomination to Annapolis. And he said, how about, you know, you may not get in. Things won't work out. How about if we put you in the West Point prep school program as a backup? And I thought, okay. That went through, and I was scheduled to go to Bullis Prep School in Washington, D.C. after my senior year in high school. But uh, time went on in April. I went to the mailbox on Saturday morning, opened the letter from the academy, and it said, basically, thanks, but no thanks. We selected oh. one of the other six guys. Well, being a carrot top, that pissed me off something fierce. So I went to my uh, Naval Academy catalog, looked up the uh, telephone number of the 
athletic department. And at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning in Kansas City, 11 o'clock back there, I called and got a guy by the name of Commander Bowler on the phone. And I said, this is who I am. Just found out I didn't get the appointment from the third congressional in Kansas City. I just want you to know that I'm going to go to West Point's prep school program next year and then sport, spend four years kicking Navy's ass playing football. <laughs> <laughs> Commander Bowler, I didn't know at the time, was the athletic director at the Naval Academy. And he said, back off, kid. Oh, 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 oh. Let's, let me get your information. Slow down. Slow down. This. Yeah. <laughs> let me look into it. And I'll get back to you. Well, Monday morning, I got called out of the first hour period to the office, and it was Commander Bowler on the phone saying, well, congratulations. We put you in our Naval Academy prep school program. And I thought, well, that's okay. I'm already in West Point. And I told him that I'm going to Bullis Prep, and that's the Naval Academy prep school program also. So just tell them you're going to pay for it instead of West Point. And he said, and this I hate, oh, no, no, no. We looked at your record, and we think you that would just be repeating your senior year in high school, and you certainly don't need that. We're going to send you to Oklahoma Military Academy in Claremore, Oklahoma. What? Yeah, that didn't send. What? Yeah, didn't send chills down my back. It kind of no. puckered my asshole. If you burn the my no. <laughs> <laughs> but he, and he said, "This is at eighteen. You believe almost anything." And he said, "By going to OMA." You're not you're going to be taking your freshman year in college, so you won't be wasting a year of your life. And as 18 years old, you go, a year of my life? I don't want to waste that. So I agreed. Consequently, I was in their prep school program. And a week later, I got a letter from Bupers, and I opened it. And this is April 66. Vietnam was going really big. They were drafting like crazy. Oh, sure. And this letter said, Congratulations on your acceptance in our prep school program. This letter authorizes you to join either the Navy or Marine Corps, regulars or reserve programs, to increase your chances of getting into the academy. Well, again, being an 18-year-old idealistic, know-nothing, wet behind the ears, I said, well, that sounds like, you know, if you're going to be a good officer, you should know what the enlisted guys go through. So I think I'll take advantage of this. And talking with my dad, he agreed. And on a Saturday morning, I went down to the 9th Naval District headquarters, walked in the door, and there were about 100 guys in there, took a number like you do at a bakery, waited for my number to be called, and went in, and a chief sitting at the desk said, what do you want, kid? And I said, hey, I got this letter from a, a Vice Admiral Bagley who calls himself Bupers. I don't know what that is, but he says I can join the Navy if I want to. The reserves, I kind of like to do that. Yeah. What are you talking about? Let me see that letter. And I hand it to him. Where did you get this thing? I said, what you, you can't read. It's right there. It's on the letterhead. And he signed it with his name. You wait here, kid. I'm going to go see the captain. He went in the office and I heard, saw him talking to the guy. Next thing I know, I'm standing in front of the captain. He goes, how did you get this letter? I said, what? What? You don't know how to read in the Navy? This is really amazing. I said, <laughs> it's obvious it's a it's from a Vice Admiral Bagley. He called him. You don't think I'll call it this number, do you? I said, I don't if you call it, I don't care. And he did. And, ba and Vice Admiral Bagley actually answered. And it was, I got this letter here. It says that he can join the reserves or the regulars. And yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. No, sir. Never again, sir. And he hung up the phone and said, I don't know who you know, kid. 
but welcome to the Navy. And so I, I was signed up in the regular and the reserves. And I didn't realize I'd made a mistake until I stepped off the bus. And there was a 260 pound, six foot five redheaded chief standing in front of me who oh took boy. one look at me and my red hair and said, you're here to piss me off, aren't you, kid? <laughs> for two weeks, I he made my life fun. <laughs> yeah, I bet he did. I bet he did. And, so was that at uh, was that up at Glenview? Where'd you go through uh, Yeah, Glenview. Which, yeah. incidentally, my first airplane ride ever was on TWA from Kansas City to Chicago O'Hare. And at the I time, I'm that. in my white uniform, Navy white uniform, Dixie cap. Yeah. And I'm thinking this is probably a bad time to figure out you hate flying. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oops. Yeah. But anyway, I went through the two weeks of boot camp and that, and the next two weeks was supposed to be on a destroyer escort in the great lakes, learning how to be a Navy sailor. And uh, the chief called me in one day and just before at the end of this two week period and said, I don't know who you know, but I've got orders here to get you out of here and to Kansas City and down to Oklahoma Military Academy, wherever God knows that is, by Sunday. Pack your bag, you're gone. How about that? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I was never so glad for two days in August of my life. Oh my gosh. So so at the uh at the uh, prep school. Uh, did you play football or yeah, did they not? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, junior college, Oklahoma junior college football, which is a whole different kind of animal. There were six of us for the prep school program there for the Navy. And it's just a brutal kind of football. We had a receiver that went out for and practice, made a diving catch and knocked out his two front teeth, came back to the coach, holding them blood dripping from his mouth going, coach, knock my teeth out. And all the coaches began taking their plates out of their mouth and going, you're a football player. Yeah, welcome, welcome aboard, sir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, right. Stick them back in. They may stay. What position uh, did you play in football? Defensive end. Oh, yeah. so the acorn didn't fall very far from yeah, the well, tree. Unfortunately, my son never saw the light. He was offense. <laughs> okay. but, right, sorry, I interrupted you. You, yeah, were in, no. you were going somewhere with that. We had to wear army uniforms. We marched and played. It's like trying to set themselves up as a West Point of the Plains. And it was basically junior college kids and the high four-year high school. And they were either delinquents that the courts sent there or their parents were rich and were trying to get rid of them and send them there. So it was <laughs> like a different kind of world experience. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's quite a crowd. Yeah from a kid from Prairie Village, Kansas. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we played the University of Tulsa when Jerry Rome was a big All-American quarterback. I, I know this predates you guys, but he was he was very big, kind of kind of a uh, Roger Stallback kind of guy. And we played their freshman team, and the uh, this commander bowler came down uh, because they were playing the varsity the next day and met with each of the six of us, and he sat there and pulled my file out and said, I don't know why we didn't get you in the academy this year. You have certainly had all the grades and the and the SATs. We should have given you a nomination this year. Well, yeah. Now you tell me. Yeah, this is this is th two months, three months into the program, and I now I get this kind of thing. But it worked. They guaranteed anybody who went in the prep school program would get a nomination. I got mine through the Naval Reserve. They take fifty a year from each of the four uh, 
regulars, Marine, Navy. Okay. So came through the reserves. Nice. Now, was that pre-major time? Because we had uh, Panther was yeah. on, and he and he was one of the first classes that got to major. I think he was started in 68. Yeah, that sounds right. Does that sound right, Faith? Panther yeah. is a classmate of mine. Get out of okay. here. Because okay. I was 68. I'm, we're okay, a class yeah. of 71. We started in, uh, well, 67. I'm sorry. I started in yeah. uh, June of 67 after my high school graduation in 66. So he was a year behind me. Okay. We were... They changed from uh, everybody taking exactly the same courses my junior year, my second class year, and uh, allowed you to choose a major. And I chose political science. And the only... Oh, they'll work yeah, out for you. <laughs> pretty good, except I had to take four years of French. And I'm the same French professor. And at the end of the last semester, the last day of classes before the final exam, first class year, he pulled me inside and said, Monsieur Gatchel. If you promise never to speak the language, if you promise never to try to tell anybody that you ever took the language, I will give you a C for a final grade. Thank which you. Was, which is way higher than I was aiming for at the time. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't say. You didn't even say we d'accord. No. <laughs> I, I just said praise Jesus. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Perfect. So, uh, so you graduated seventy one from the academy, yep. and then yeah. uh, to straight to flight school. Uh, almost uh, at this particular time, it was kind of in the law of Vietnam. So the b- bottom line is, I had to go to the fleet and serve on a ship for n- nine months before I could go to flight school. Uh, service selection night, you go down to a big auditorium, and they call you in order of your class, and you select what you want to do. There are different boards around. And the aviation board, you went over and they had flight dates, flight school start dates. And by the time I got there, the first date was in February of 72. Oh, shit. So I ended up on the John S. McCain, a DDG out of uh, Long Beach for six months before I went to flight school. Hey, uh, just as a side note, uh, how uh, how did the uh, Naval Academy's football team do the years that you played against Army? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, we won my plebe year and my first class year, the two most important years. Okay. The first class, plebe year, if you win, and this was always the Saturday after Thanksgiving, you got carry on. You didn't have to run in the halls. You didn't have to brace up. You didn't have to eat square meals. You could be a normal person from that weekend until you came back after spring, after Christmas break in January. So it was huge. Oh, yeah. To, to win that year. <laughs> <laughs> and then first class here, because obviously it gives you bragging rights going into the service. Right. Your last game is, a well, against another service academy. In yeah. How, however, I, I'll i tell you, it came down to decision. I could either play football or I could graduate from the academy. I couldn't do both. So I decided to uh, stop playing football after sophomore after my youngster year, which is sophomore year at the academy. My roommate flunked out, and I came within – Three people are being called in front of the academic board for malfeasance, if you will, (laughs) uh, when they stop kicking people out. And after that, I decided I better get serious about school, et cetera. Okay. It didn't. What did we learn last week? What do you call the last guy in his class? He's the anchor man. Graduate. graduate. (laughs) Anchor man, but he's the graduate. (laughs) The anchor man in the class of 69 lived across across the hall from me. 
He was an offensive tackle for us. And that man saved my ass more times than I care to re- to tell you about from the <laughs> assholes in the squadron that wanted to run this young man's ass into the ground. Well, you have him to thank for that then. Yes, I did. <laughs> he, he was a very good friend. So flight school in spring of 72. Two. Okay. Yep. Uh, Meridian VT1, of course. 30 some hours. The instructor, we got the first day of training where you actually go out to the flight line. They assign you an instructor and two of us had an instructor. And the first question he asked after introducing himself, what do you want to fly? My compatriot sitting next to me said, I want to fly helos. And I said, I want to fly jets. And by God, that's the way he worked it. I didn't know at the time, but having been an instructor, I now understand that the pretty much the fix was in for me. Okay. That he makes sure that my grades were good enough. I got jet selected. Excellent. And that was in Meridian? Yeah. Not, uh, not Pensacola? No. No. That at the time, you could stay in Pensacola, but not very many people did. You either went to Beeville, Kingsville, or Meridian. Okay. And when I heard Meridian, again, one of those, oh, no. Right. And sure enough, I got BT9 in Meridian for basic. And I spent the next three years of my life there. Oh, because you uh, got surgraded. Uh, yeah, plowback sir, grad. Uh, the way it worked is we started advanced jets the day McCain came home from the north. We watched him on TV get off the airplane and limp over to be greeted and everything. And then we went in and started academic. Wow. Uh, VT-7 advanced oh, yeah. jets there. Okay. So was that uh, TA-4s back then? Yep, TA-4s. Okay. Biggest uh, squadron in the Navy. They had over 120 TA-4s. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that it was huge. Big. Yeah. We got our wings in June of 73. My class in June, they decided that the war had ended when McCain came home. It was all over, that they didn't need pilots anymore in the Navy. So 50% of the graduates in June were sent to the fleet. The bottom 50% were sent to the fleet never to fly again for the Navy. The top 50% were all plowed back to the training command. To instructor jobs, yeah. So obviously you were in the top 50%, thank goodness. Uh, Well... I'm not, I don't know whether I was or not, but as a student, I was kind of bored because you only fly once or twice. If you're really like twice a day, some days you don't fly at all. So I had asked the uh, XO of the squadron if I could have a job in the squadron. And he assigned me to be the branch officer for the paraloft and the ejection okay. seat guys. So yeah. I was working in the squadron. And when this came out, they requested me for BT-7. Oh, so, that worked out good. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it worked out really good for a while. And as as a new instructor, you do all the fam and instrument work. My first student was a Marine helicopter pilot captain back from Vietnam. At this time, now that the war was over, all the guys that went through Army helicopter training, they now had to go back through Navy flight training to get their unrestricted aviator on their file. Okay. And my first student, this this Marine captain, had the habit of every time we'd sit down for a brief, he'd have his logbook out, paging through it. I don't know if you guys know, in the, log, in the Navy logbooks, the combat time is green. Nighttime's red, normal time's black, but combat time is always in green ink. It'd be page after page after page of green time, trying to intimidate me. And it worked, it worked pretty good. <laughs> my, first, my first GCA hop with him in the back, he was coming in, and at 200 feet, when he would, the controller told him to go around, he dropped the nose and added power, which in an A4 
slams you into the ground a lot faster than what you thought you were going to do. Oh, yeah. yeah. It scared the bejesus <laughs> out of me. I grabbed the airplane. It wasn't until later on that I found out the way you go around in a helicopter is you lower the collective to change the pitch angle on the rotors and add power. He was just he was just doing muscle memory, man. Yes, <laughs> I was all muscle memory. <laughs> it took me a long, took me several of those. The next time I was ready for him, but the oh, yeah. first time, oh, Lord, you talk about a pucker factor. Oh, Surprise. <laughs> Incidentally, our first day at uh, in Pensacola was a physiology hour, and the flight surgeon came in to talk about physiology. He turned around on the board and put the word lemur on the board, wrote lemur. And he said, gentlemen, okay. the definition of a lemur is a cold shot of urine to your heart. He said, if you're not lucky, you'll experience that once. If you're lucky, you'll experience more than once, probably many times in your career. And to say I had a lemur on that GCA hop with that Marine was an understatement. Yeah, GCA. GCA stands for? Ground Controlled Approach. Ground Controlled Approach. All right, I didn't know if we had covered that before, but I just wanted to make sure that was out there. I don't know if we have Yeah, GCA, Ground Controlled Approach. You actually got a controller sitting there going, you're a little high, down down and on glide slope, slightly left. Yeah. Yeah. Come come left, come come right. right. Yeah, it was the uh, Navy and Marine Corps version of a precision approach. None of our airplanes uh, were equipped with ILSs uh, like the Air Force guys had. So because we're much better. First ILS I ever flew was for American. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, what the hell is this? (laughs) Hey, so I'm just curious. Three years as a SIR grad or an instructor. Yeah, two years. Two two years. How how much flying, uh, how much A4 time did you end up with? A thousand hours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But here's the deal. I wanted fighters. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And so I was going to do everything I could to be a fighter pilot. So I would sit in the back of lead solos. The way ACM air combat maneuvering hops work in the training command, there's always a lead, uh, lead and the student goes with an instructor on the first, say, offensive hop. And he teaches you how to, how to do yo-yos, et cetera. And then the student goes solo but there's always a solo lead. So I'd fly my one or two hops as an instructor. And then I'd go jump in the backseat of some ACM lead and fly with them. And after doing that for about eight months, I was flying on a Friday night in the backseat of the ACM stand officer, the guy that runs the program. And we got out of it. And he said, when we landed, he said, if you're too stupid to go to the club on Friday afternoon to drink, I'm going to qualify you so that I can go to the club and drink. <laughs> yeah, right on. <laughs> so at uh, about 10 months care. in the program, I became an ACM instructor and was one of the first plowbacks, was the first plowback in uh, Meridian that ever became an ACM nice. instructor. Very so nice. for the, yeah, the last year I flew ACM and tactical hops the whole time. Not being the smartest kid in the in the room. I decided that I wanted to be an LSO when I was in the fleet. So why not try to be an LSO in the training command, which they never had and they never done before. Went in and talked to the squadron LSOs. We had two from the fleet. We talked to the detailers and et cetera. And they said, we've never done it before, but what the hell? Why not try it? And let's see how it goes. So I started LSOing uh, my last year also and went to the boat with them and I'll be darned. started to be an LSO. And that was my big undoing. That screwed me over because... Well, landing signal officer, the definition of that is uh, standing on the boat and watching your friends fly. Yeah, <laughs> watching them try to kill you. 
<laughs> but because I did, uh, was an LSO when our detailing came up, and the way this this surgrad, 50% went to the fleet, 50% became plowbacks. Of those 50%, only 50% were going to go to the fleet. So you had to be good enough that you made the cut again. And that's one of the reasons I volunteered to be an LSO. And when the detailer, they were detailing our group, I made the cut. But I guess they all sit in a room around desk. And uh, they were transitioning S2s, which were a prop airplane, to S3s, which were jets. And uh, the damn S3 detailer called out, hey, I need an LSO. Was there anybody got an LSO? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, uh uh-oh. So, yeah, I got one here. He's uh, coming out of the training command. I'll take him. So they, they got, I got S3s out of that. And on the morning that, they, that we knew, every, we were all waiting. We knew that it was going to come down any day. And then the squadron and I went in one morning and they said, hey, the orders came in for you guys. And I said, what did I get? And they said, the skipper, skipper won't let me tell you. He said, wait till he comes in this morning. I said, where is he? He said, he's out playing golf. So I jumped in my car and drove up to the golf course and chased the skipper <laughs> <No>. down Yes, <laughs> on a green and said, skipper, I got to know. I gots to know. And he said, Kip, I'm sorry. You're not going to like it. They don't do the kind of flying you like to do. It's, they're a different kind of animal. You got an S3. And I mean, I felt my heart drop out of my chest down in my shoes. Oh, no. Skipper, come on, you don't play with me. And he said, I'm not playing. He said, go to the squadron. When we get there, we'll start calling and see if we can't get it changed. And we couldn't. Oh, so I went off to be an LSO for a brand new S3 squadron that they were putting together. It was actually right. the last S2 squadron in the fleet. And the, oh, and the way okay. it worked, uh, the S3 was an airplane that was meant to have one set of controls in the left seat. There'd be a right seat, but he'd be working the radar, the FLIR, the ESM. They had a AW in the back left seat. He read all the sound buoy information, did all the sound stuff, listened to that, tried to determine what pumps, et cetera, he was listening to. And then the tactical officer sat in the right back seat. Well, the S3 community, the VS community, wasn't highly rated in the Navy. And there were admirals that said, you're going to put, put stoof pilots into a jet? They're going to kill themselves. We'll put a, set of, a second set of controls in the right seat, and we'll put a jet-qualified aviator in the right seat to make sure these guys don't kill themselves. So immediately you had a community that was split between senior S2 pilots that have flown props their whole life yeah, and right. nuggets coming in that were all jet trained aviators. And it was okay. not a good situation. And that S2 was a, those were monster uh, reciprocating piston yeah. engines, uh, radial piston engines. My, my, when I got to this VS 24, they'd just given up their S2s and the LSO I was replacing hadn't left yet. And he said, hey, you want to go flying? I said, yeah, let's, you know, he said, we'll go get, pick up an S2 from the uh, rag. We walked over the yellow sheets, signed for the airplane. And then he said, let's go next door and get a lunch. And I thought, what? Went in and got a box lunch to take out to the airplane. And I thought, oh, this is really a different kind of flying. Uh-huh. Never once did I eat a lunch flying in an A4. Right. Right. <laughs> so, hey. Might have lost your lunch flying in an A4 once yeah. or twice. <laughs> did, uh. 
Did you know Chaz from the fleet? I asked him that pre-show. Okay. He, yeah, he was in Nimitz, and uh, Chaz was forced okay. off. So. Okay. One of the things I wanted to talk about in the training command was my flight jacket and the saga of my leather flight jacket. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Tell that story. My first Navy student, I picked up in uh, basic instruments and took him through to advanced instruments, flying under the back and under the bag in an A4. And one of the things they're supposed to do is go on cross countries with these guys. So he had an uncle out in L.A. that got tickets for us on a Saturday for the USC-UCLA game. And I put in a request to do a cross country out to El Toro in uh, L.A., got it approved. And on a Friday afternoon, we took off from Meridian. We were, I was going to stop at, uh, at Dyes to, for gas, but our fuel was so good. It was such a great day and there wasn't much headwind going west. We stretched it all the way to Cannon Air Force Base. And the old adage, never refuel at some place you don't want to spend a lot of time at. Right. Bit me in the ass. <laughs> Coming out of there at sundown, we had a complete electrical failure. Now, my student's under the bag. He's still climbing out. And I'm sitting there going, oh, man, this football game's great. They're playing for first place in the Pac West. If I just follow Interstate 10, I probably can find L.A., but never having been flown into L.A., I thought, how the hell am I going to find El Toro in that L.A. basin? And as I'm trying to ponder this, continuing to fly, we had a hydraulic failure at the same time. And in the A-4, the first thing under hydraulic failure is a big red caution fire. The hydraulic bowsers sit above the engine. So I decided that enough of this. Time to go back to Cannon. We declared an emergency. I took the airplane. We dove into Cannon and landed. And it was such a bad thing that the damn duty officer came out in his own personal car and picked us up on the flight line, took us over to the BOQ, and then to the O Club. He felt so bad for us and dropped us off. At 7 o'clock, we walked into the O Club on a Friday night, and there was not a single person there but the bartender. And we sat down oh. and looked at each other and said, this just gets worse and worse. Yeah. Let's get this party started, huh? Yeehaw. <laughs> we're, drink, we're drinking our beer feeling as low as you can when all of a sudden the doors open and in came a whole F-111 squadron. They had been doing the dining in. And they all piled in here. And the first thing we know, the CO sent over a couple of beers for us. And then the XO sent over some beers. And it started working down the line until it was the junior officers in the squadron were buying us shots of tequila. And we're at the bar now. And Big yeah, I decided that <laughs> it was only fair to show Navy hospitality reciprocate. And so the four of us, my student and the two JOs from the F-111 squadron, went through a whole fifth of tequila trying to, trying to who, who could outlast the other one. The next morning, I woke up spread eagle Sands clothes on the BOQ room floor. Did the toe and finger crawl over to the porcelain? Sure, sure. (laughs) Eventually staggered out and began getting dressed, and my leather flight jacket wasn't around. Instead, there was an Air Force nylon grain flight jacket there. Ah. That son of a bitch stole my jacket from me, but he was at least nice enough to leave me a jacket. I put it on. And it came to there on my arms. Right. <laughs> so it was a trade. He traded yes, you. you he just traded. Yeah, yeah, he traded you. Not a and good the, trade. 
the way it works, we had Marine captains in the squadron instructors. And the way the Navy works, they sent a Marine captain and a mech to fix our airplane. And my student and I sat in ops and watched the UCLA-USC game, hung over watching this. Then we flew back that night to Meridian. I landed. My next door neighbor was a short guy and had always wanted this nylon green Air Force flight jacket. It was kind of sought after at the time. So I traded the jacket for a tail hook, A4 tail hook. Nice, nice. And this guy's name was Fireball. So named because like one of the other people on your podcast, his airplane was on fire on a GCA hop. And he decided instead of ejecting, he was a mile and a half short of the field. He'd just come on in and land. And so from that time on, he was called Fireball. That's he, was, <laughs> he was just a blaze of fire coming down final. <laughs> So I'm glad we can laugh about that though, yeah. really. <laughs> right? Exactly. Years go by. They don't always end that well. Years go by. This guy, my buddy is now a Delta pilot, and he's a super he's a stretch eight check air check airman on as an engineer. And uh he's calling the role on a new class sitting in front of him. And one of the guys, he calls the name and he says, Here. And he goes, he looks at him, goes, no, you're not. He said, that is the name on your jacket. The name on your jacket says Kip Gatchel. And he goes, oh, this old thing? He said, I won this in a poker game. <laughs> well, he goes, no, you didn't. I have your jacket hanging in my closet. You stole it from him after you got him drunk in, in Canon, New Mexico. And we don't allow <laughs> thieves in our in at Delta Airlines. Pack your things and get out. And the guy just turned white and he, had to admit, I'm just pulling your leg, but I know the story behind that jacket. Well, 20 years go by. <laughs> my son's roommate in college, who's they both got went to Louisiana Tech and got all their ratings there and then followed each other around. He was a United pilot. He's sitting in the bar in Amarillo, Texas, and calls me up one night and goes, would you like your flight jacket back? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm sitting in the bar, and there's a guy at the bar who says he's Kip Gatchel wearing a Navy flight jacket. Yeah, you out. want me to get it back for you? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Let him keep it. If he's had it that long, he deserves it. But I thought, that's kind of an unusual. I mean, how many times does this keep running? Do you keep running into your old jacket? Right, right. It's a small yeah. world. And aviation's an even smaller <laughs> world. So That's, that's mm. a good story. Yeah. It's the, it's the flight jacket that wouldn't go away. Yeah. Anyway, it ended up in VS-24. We had uh, 25 pilots, and I was a Nugget LSO. The two two S2 LSOs had extended. This gets into the CV, CVA, and CVS stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Navy was going from two carrier groups, any submarine and attack, to one carrier, uh, and they were going to put the ASW on the big boat. And the this squadron VS-24 made the last CVS cruise, or, well, actually it was the first CV cruise on the Intrepid where they put a, the S-2s with attack airplanes to see how it would work. And because of that, these their LSOs had extended for this extra cruise and couldn't extend anymore. So the, I ended up as a negative LSO with no senior LSOs over me. 
and responsible for getting 25 guys carrier qual and came back. We spent six months out at uh, North Island getting transitioned, picked up our new airplanes at the factory in Long Beach and flew them back to Cecil Field in Florida. And the first day back, the CO calls me into the office and said, when's when's my first deck? (laughs) Excuse me? He said, when's my first deck? I want to know by noon when my first deck is so I can go out and carry a qual on. I said, uh, I don't know how to do that. And he said, you're my LSO, figure it out. Oh, boy. Yeah, I had to go shopping <laughs> through other hangars trying to find LSOs that tell me how the hell <laughs> you qualify <laughs> a squadron and get a carrier so deck. So how, how, how does one get a carrier deck? Uh, you, you call around. Carrier deck <laughs> and our first deck I got was the uh, he started making phone calls. Lexington out of Pensacola, a training carrier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, and I, I, thought, I, I landed on yeah, Do you land thought, on the Lex? I got sixteen traps yeah, on them. I got ten. I got uh, six. I got. <laughs> I got six. I got ten. Hey, all right. When we were students, the Lex was in the yard, and yeah. the T two we couldn't get any traps. So in the A four, we got the four that you're supposed to get in the T two plus our right. six. How about that? And that's probably the first time I ever flew with a completely drunk pilot. Uh, <laughs> uh, when you went to the boat? Yeah, we'd been out steaming the night before because overhead was until three o'clock. So okay. we closed all the bars down in Meridian at two. And at six, they called us and told us we had a 10 o'clock overhead. Oops. Yeah. And the way these guys had worked it, the instructors had worked it. No drinking within 50 feet. You were fine. Yeah. <laughs> the, because we hadn't had traps as, as T2 students, they convinced our skipper that what they need, we needed to do was ride in their back seat so we could see what trapping and catapult shots were all about as nuggets which was wow. a complete boondoggle for these guys so they could oh, get traps. You, you bet. So I'm sitting in the back seat going out to the boat the first time. And my first trap was sitting in the back seat. And I mean to tell you, it was amazing because you got nothing to do except try to peer around the guy in front of you. Right. And all of a sudden you're being slammed into the instrument panel on the trap. <laughs> they took us right over to the cat, hooked us up and took the cat shot. And I thought my heart was going to come out of my mouth. It was the most amazing feeling you've ever experienced when you don't have to do anything except ride it. (laughs) It was amazing. And we went back to the beach, and then the next day we went out as Nugget students and got our traps. Well, it's kind of nice having a a preview. Yeah. Right? So when you alluded to this, the guy that you were in the backseat of, you're pretty sure he he wasn't wasn't functioning. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of unnerving. From this experience, I tried to convince the skipper and the squadron after I was plowed back to give me some money to study because I figured I could do a physiological study of how you couldn't survive a cat shot while you're having sex at the same time. And I figured with enough money, sit in the back of the A4, have a young lady straddling you. And this takes, you got to appreciate, this takes a lot of time work because there's such a delay from when you salute the cat officer to when he actually points down the deck and they push the button to fire the cat. Right. It's all about timing. And I I figured it's going to take a lot of work to get this down. And you take the cat shot, you have the orgasm, and I figured that would probably kill you. Yeah. And and the skipper said, what if it doesn't? Then I've wasted my money. I said, ah, skipper, cat shot. Orgasm, ejection. Have her <laughs> pull the face curtain as you're taking the cat shot with an <laughs> orgasm. And I'm pretty sure if, 
There would be no surviving that. He never bought off on it. Gee, I wonder, I wonder why. That sounds like a really good idea, yeah. though. On paper. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. That, yeah. Oh, there's almost a show title in there oh, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Now, but oh, that's a lot oh, of yeah, words, a, you know. <laughs> cat shot and orga- cat shots Wait, and orgasms. We, we, we may have to paraphrase. Hey, before we go any farther, uh, there was an acronym thrown out that I don't know we've ever covered. Uh, ASW. I know what it means, but uh, any, can you explain sum- it? Yeah. Any submarine warfare. That's basically what your uh, your weapon system was yeah, all about. Yeah, the S3 right? was all designed to fight submarines. Okay. It carried uh, sensors and uh, weapons was a torpedo or depth charges, including and, and, uh, nuclear depth charges. We had a radar that was good at 160 miles, supposedly could pick up a Coke can at 160 miles. Wow. It had a tremendous ESM suite on it that could gather all this radar emissions and be able to triangulate where the receivers the transmitters were coming from with all that uh, electronic equipment going on i'm surprised any of you people ever reproduced (laughs) (laughs) and our our big computers on that we had three of these things was 376k wow that was a big computer (laughs) that was huge it was the first big the f-14 and the s3 were the first computerized airplanes in the navy and it was they were big and one of the things we learned in the S3 with all this electronic stuff, we had to start up 45 minutes before our cat shots so we could get everything online and see if it would work. And you'd turn all the systems on. And if it didn't work, the first thing you did is just turn it on and off. Right. If that yeah. didn't clear right. the fault, you, you turned it off and called the ETs in. They turn, told you to turn it on. They'd see that the message still was there. They'd go and unseat the box in the back of the airplane in the rack. Call that a re-rack. Yeah. The S3 had a (laughs) a tunnel behind the two guys in the back with all these electronic boxes in it. And they'd go and unplug it and plug it back in. And if that didn't clear it, they'd send it down to the the shops and put a new box in. Big control-alt-delete there. New uh, reboot. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I imagine cooling was probably it. Oh, yeah. Big pain oh, in the ass, yeah. too. We had, keep that we had big, cool. yeah, they always had big air conditioning doohickeys plugged into us to keep the electronics cool. And now your iPhone or your yeah, uh, yeah. your Android has much more 50 yeah. times the computing yeah. power, 500 yeah. times the computing Unbelievable. power. Right? It's crazy. All those racks. You, uh, you alluded to in, uh, in our preamble um, about your night in the barrel. Oh, okay. Uh, talk about that. Yeah. The S3, the S3, uh, we took off five minutes before the air wing because we were very we had very big wings. They folded, but when they came down, they took up a lot of deck space. So to get rid of us, they'd shoot us five minutes before the rest of the air wing. And we'd been at a mid-crew stand down and had just gone out for the first line period out of uh, Sigonella into the med. And we got a real-world tasking that the Russians were bringing down a uh, nuclear attack boat to bring into the med. And he was supposed to be coming through the Straits of Gibraltar that night. And in the meantime, there was a diesel electric boat sitting outside the Strait of Gibraltar on the surface, waiting for the Russian to show up so they could start doing the crazy Ivan dance to get rid of the American attack boat that was following the Russian down. Uh-huh. And so we got tasked to go out and spend the night over the top of this diesel electric boat with our flare, which allowed us to see him just like it was daytime. And... The idea was when he pulled the plug, we'd call control and tell him 
the Russians are starting their dance. And so the deck was moving about 40 to 50 feet that night as we're manning up, the whole air wing's getting ready to go at launch. And just before the, about 10 minutes before the launch, the air boss comes on and said, cancel the launch, launch the Viking. The SV's name was a Viking. Yeah. And I said, boss, let's reason together. (laughs) Can't we cancel too? Launch the Viking. So the next thing I know, bam, we're shot off. And the whole air wing's been canceled. I told I'm flying with my assistant LSO, who's in the left seat. And the way the Navy works, you need two landings when you come from a a night carrier landing is good for seven days, period. That's it. After seven days, you need two day traps, two day landings before you can do a night trap. So this is our first day out. Joe had had my uh, assistant LSO, Joe, had had his two, uh, two landings. I'd only had one, so I wasn't night qualified. I wasn't qualified to go at night in the right seat. So I'm sitting in the right seat working the radar and flare for Joe, who's flying in the left seat as, their, as the pilot in command. And we go out, sit on top of this Russian diesel boat for four hours. And I'm telling Joe, this is not good. When we come back, the whole damn boat's been staying up for four hours waiting for us. And I said, what's going to happen? They're going to bring us in at 1,200 feet at 450 knots. And about three miles behind the boat, they're going to call, dirty up, call the ball. And that's exactly what happened. And now you call the ball. And the first thing we hear is disregard the ball. The deck's moving. And it's like, oh, good. Here we go. Our first pass, we had to climb to get above the back of the boat. And so that was, oh, first, yeah, that was our first wave off. The next pass, the boat rolled into us and we had to go, we had to do a go around to avoid hitting the island that was rolling in front of us. We did two bolters. And after, as we were climbing out for the next, this is after four passes, the squadron LSO calls up and goes, uh, Hey, uh, Viking, we can't find your squadron LSO. He's nowhere to be found on the ship. He's in the. <laughs> yeah, I said, "Well, Bob, that's because I'm sitting there in the right seat. I know where he's he is. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, pick me, goes, pick me." He goes, Where's your assistant? I said, "Well, he's sitting in the left seat." And he goes, "Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you change seats with Joe?" And I said, "Oh, I'm not going to oh, ruin no. my landing grade." <laughs> that isn't what I said, but I uh, I would, Bob, and I'm not qualified to go at night. I only had one day landing. <laughs> Beautiful. And so on the sixth trap, we finally got aboard. But it was it was one of those things where we had guys in the back that were, the barrel. that were looking, watching this on FLIR, and they kept trying to tell us things. It's like, stop talking to us. We're working here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know how screwed yeah. up this is. <laughs> Don't need to tell us. <laughs> uh, that's when you needed the uh, shot of medicinal brandy after you landed. Oh, boy. Right, right on. Mm. Oh, that's verboten, though. Yeah. But uh, before you move on, let me uh, ask. So you stood on that platform a yes. lot. And uh, what's what's the most colorful okay. or, or most frightening thing you saw standing on the LSO? We platform? did have an F-14 ramp strike during workups. Uh, I was in Ooh. Tim Keating's. He was a classmate of mine. I was in class. I was in company six, and he was in company four at the academy. We knew each other. We've been friends for four years. He was an A-7 LSO on his uh, second or third uh, cruise on with the A-7 squadron. He was our team leader. 
and I was assigned to his team. There were four, there are four or five guys in the team. The way it works on the LSO platform, which is five by five, there's a uh, air wing CAG LSO, uh, Commander Air Group is a CAG. And there's a CAG LSO who's a senior LSO over all the LSOs on the boat. There are four or five team leaders. You'd fly the way it works as an LSO, you fly two days and then you wave one whole day and night. And each of the squadrons has several LSOs and they become part of the team. This night we were bringing in uh, F-14s on a the first real dark landing, night landing. And the second guy down, uh, I was writing book for Tim, the way it works. The CAG controlling LSO stands behind the team leader who is a controlling LSO at night. He has a, he has a pickle switch to control the wave off lights on the mirror. And he has a radio. He's talking to the pilots coming in. The guy writing book who's standing right beside him looks at the second guy back at night and makes sure he's not going to kill himself. Well, this night, the second guy back was really far right. So I turned to the CAG LSO and said, hey, second guy needs to come left for lineup. And you always have an A and B channel. First guy's on A, second guy's on B. The CAG LSO changed to the B channel and called left for lineup. We took the first F-14, and now we're looking at the second guy that was started off bad. And his night's going from bad to worse. He gets slow in the middle, and he, he gets a power call. Goes high and close and sucks off all the power and starts coming down. And five and a half seconds from the ramp, we gave him power, power, wave off, wave off. The red wave off lights on the mirror are flashing. As he's coming down, he notices the ball's dropping. He begins ratcheting the nose up to try to hold the ball. Uh-oh. And now, Ooh. these are turbofan engines on the F-14. He had them in the spool down. So it takes a, takes a second to spool it up. Ta- takes, takes about takes about six years, yeah, I think, right. for the power to come up when you're and that low. <laughs> we did, when we heard that when he got the first power, he he took it. He, he said he took it, locked his arm, and this guy was the uh, an F-14 LSO. He was a junior LSO in an F-14 squadron. He locked his arm, but the engine took a while to spool up, and he's trying to hold the ball up. Now, as the engine starts spooling up, he's behind the power curve. Yeah, there isn't yeah. enough power to get him overcome the drag of where he is. And he smacked the back of the ramp. The The main gear made the, the deck. The, the main gear part, cleared, the, cleared the round but, out, cleared yeah, the round down. The rest of the engines part fell off. Oh, shit. The only thing he did all night long was get his line up, squared away. All the debris went up and off the angle. Thank goodness. Now, the way carrier crashes work, people die. Yeah. On this LSO platform, on the Nimitz, it was sunken. It was three feet below the flight deck level. So you couldn't stand on the flight deck. You could only lean over there to watch them if you needed to. But they had this big steel net off the side of you, about eight feet down, that's woven, big steel cords. Yeah. Steel, steel the, mesh, big steel yeah. mesh net, basically, you yeah. jump into, right? Yeah. And the first thing you do as an LSO, if there aren't any mattresses there, you go down to the enlisted uh, bunk rooms and steal mattresses and go up and <laughs> plant them all over there. Because if you jump into a steel net, it's going to be like straining yourself as you go through there. I was going to say, you're going to strain <laughs> yeah. yourself, right? Yeah. But one of my fears was the way the adrenaline works is that I need to jump in the net. I'll probably miss the net by jumping over it and end up in a swan dive for 60 feet down to the all ocean. Right. At night. 
Yeah. This night I found out that. And the Russian judge yeah. says. <laughs> this night I found out it isn't your brain that takes control. It's your knees. As you're sitting there watching this, we knew he was going to hit the ramp. And I'm sitting there. I can't believe he's going to hit the ramp. I can't. And your knees go, we're out of here. We don't get right. paid enough to do this. Right. And we all collapsed in a, basically a big puppy pile on the platform and rolled into the net. <laughs> and we jumped over the railing wow. and into the first door we we came to, slammed the fireproof door because there's always fire and debris on these things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the CAG LSO goes, uh, Keating, Tim Keating, Keating, take a your role of your team and let's see who isn't here. Well, Keating wasn't there. Yeah. He and since he was a classmate of mine, I told I told the CAG LSO, I'll go check on him. Figuring that I'm going to find Keating cut in half or bleeding or maimed or something. Right. So yeah. I climb out, get on the rail, peer over the, the platform and Keating's up there, God damn son of a bitch, hit the fucking ramp on me. I'm gonna kill you. you. <laughs> he was there, he never he never jumped over. No, he's still <laughs> cussing out the pilot who's now in a parachute coming down, landing in the water. <laughs> the the Rio, the back seater, ended up on top of an A6, and he was the only one in this whole accident that got hurt because he cut his arm on a blade antenna on the top of the A6 oh, and needed about six stitches to fix the cut. Well, that's a miracle. It was. Yeah, All it the is. debris went up and off the angle. And on a carrier, the way it works is you have a yellow line that's the foul line. And all the mechanics and all the deck crew were lying in that thing on a recovery, waiting for their planes to come in. Yeah, which is on the right-hand side, right? Right. The foul line's on the right-hand side of the of the angled deck. Yep. And the only airplane that got hurt was an S3 because the one of the main gears bounced up and came down on a wing and punched a hole in the top of the wing from the fire as it bounced off into the ocean. Nobody, nobody died. Nobody got hurt. That is a miracle. And the board gave the uh, pilot an up. And he flew with he flew the made the cruise with us. Nice. Keating was not at fault for it. And one of the really amazing things, years later, I'm sitting having a uh, RC cola watching the news. And after the news, <laughs> I switched on a program called JAG. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Yeah, that. yeah. Yeah. I used to say about a Navy JAG lawyer that's an F-14 pilot. Yes. Well, in this program, he's got a woman pilot that having trouble at the boat. So he's out w working with her on a two plane and bringing her into the carrier at night in, in a storm. Uh -huh. And I'm sitting there watching our accident, our ramp strike on this. It was the plat tape from that yes, night. The plat <laughs> tape from that night. And I'm sitting there. I can't believe the Navy did this. How about that? Let them have it. Maybe, yeah. maybe the Navy didn't know they had that <laughs> flat tape. Right? I have. You can use anything for less than thirty yeah. seconds. Fair use. Yeah, I you haven't know? seen Keating <laughs> since uh, we left the the off of that cruise, but I always wanted to ask him if he knew if, that the Navy released our ramp strike oh, for commercial darn. TV. Well, I you know that's a good story because. Uh, it it kind of has a happy ending, you know. No nobody died there, nobody died. other than the F fourteen that was uh, <laughs> destroyed. No, yeah. no, nothing else really got destroyed. Sounds like he even got to reuse that S three. Yeah, they, they, they patched that it, Incidentally, this got some speed tape and watch this it. cruise on the Nimitz seventy eight Med cruise was the first time in naval aviation history, and it was sixty eight years into it that not one pilot got killed. That which cruise? is an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. We lost five airplanes, but we got all the pilots back. 
Uh, so you lost five airplanes in one cruise. Yeah. Okay. So that was uh, one was the F-14 incident you just talked about. Yeah. What, what were the other aircraft? Uh, an A-7 got in a flat spin, which you can't get an inverted flat spin. And you can't get an A-7 out of a flat spin, but okay. an inverted flat spin. And it turned out he was a test pilot from Pax River. So when he said it was an inverted, they took his word for it. Yeah. And he okay. punched out and they got him back. Uh, we lost a Hilo. We had an RA-5C break its back on landing. What, what's and it, uh, it's the Vigilante, the big oh, Vigilante. supersonic yes, bomber yes. that became okay. a recon plane. Yes. Uh, landed, okay. trapped aboard, and broke right behind the cockpit. Into, <laughs> Oops. Oops. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what else did we lose? I can't can't remember the other ones. But no no pilots. No pilot. No the pilots. Hero, we, lost, we lost one of our H3s in the and, Caribbean. And, and they all got out. They got that one was amazing. They had a they had a transmission problem, so they put it down on the water about three miles off the side of the ship. They yeah. were on plane guard duty. And so, so who, ship, hey, who gets to who gets the crew when the plane guard goes down? Shit. <laughs> well, the right. way the, the boat kind of motored over beside it. And now the Hilo squadron skipper and maintenance officer are arguing with the first lieutenant on the boat and the executive officer of who gets to recover the Hilo. In the meantime, the crew is in their rubber life rafts and get picked up. And we're sitting there watching this Hilo slowly sink into the water. And as we're watching it, all of a sudden the water goes over the, the, the floor of the door and the boat keeps sinking, and it gets fuller and fuller. And pretty soon, the rotors are afloat, and they settle. And now they decide, okay, it's time to put the crane on and pull it up. Well, the only problem is now you're pulling up the whole entire ocean with it. Right. Yeah, it's full yeah. of water now. It didn't, yeah. Water's it heavy. It didn't come. The cable snapped, and the, we watched it disappear out of sight. How about that? Uh, so uh, something that I wanted to ask you earlier, but I, I couldn't, I didn't want to interrupt because yeah. you were kind of on a roll and this goes way back, way back to Meridian. You were yeah. an instructor there. Um, when you were instructor at, at the, in the training command, did you lose any A4s during the period you were there? Yes. Three. Oh my god! Didn't gosh. lose a student though. Okay. The uh, problem we okay. were having, uh, the landing gear cable was being misrigged on the main gear. And it occasionally a hang up on the door when it okay. came down. Yeah. So you would try to do all kinds of things, raise the gear, lower the gear, G it, negative G it. If yeah. that didn't work, you just brought the gear up into the belly and landed on the drop tanks. Sure. And the, the damage, there was no damage to the airplane. They'd skid out on, they'd foam the runway. You try to land in the foam. They take the drop tank, they jack the airplane up, lower the gear, take the drop tanks off and have to take off the nose cone. And it's a fiberglass nose cone. Yeah. And it wasn't an accident. It was a mishap. Yeah. Cause but of the, in the, the meantime, cost. Yeah. yeah. In the meantime, guys would punch out of this thing because it was such an un set. The A, the A, the TA four sits up high on a skier. Yeah. yeah. And when you come down, it's really low. And so they scare <laughs> yeah. people and they'd punch out. Yeah. So. That's interesting. Yeah. I was yeah I was just curious because um you know we we uh we talk about uh, a lot especially with the uh, fellow naval aviator stories yeah. and how many air how many crew and airplanes mm -hmm. are lost just in training yeah and um, 
And so that's what made me think of it. Yeah. Uh, in my entire Navy career, we didn't lose a pilot in any of the squadrons I was in. That's a miracle. It is amazing. That is, that's rare. I mean, that yes, is so rare. Very miraculous, rare. yes. Now, I lost yeah. friends and fellow pilots after they went to other squadrons, but never in the squadrons I was in. You, you so, must be like uh, the good luck charm. <laughs> I'm the little exactly. lucky charm in Leprechaun. <laughs> a giant Leprechaun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. uh, if we have time, I got, uh, we made the first port call into Israel by a carrier Ooh. in the Navy in 78. Very, very first ever. Very first. And by port call, I mean, we went into Haifa yeah. and we stayed a mile okay. off the beach out of Haifa. And then you bowed in to Haifa. But uh, going in there, since we were the first one, it was a big deal. So the Israeli war cabinet came out and they helicoptered the board. And we were going to put on our air wing flight demonstration. Where each of the squadrons comes in a desert thing. The F-14s come by fast and they come by slow with the wings out. The A-7s come in and do a bunch of bombing stuff. And our last part of our air wing was always an A-6 would come in with all the Mark 82s and do a laydown, which is pretty impressive. They can carry a lot of Mark 82s. Oh, yeah. And the way they set this up is they put a empty 55-gallon drum with a flare on it one, at one end and another one at the other end, and that's your run-in line for the demonstration. Well, the ship's navigator forgot to take into account drift of the ocean. Oops. And by the time the A-6 came in and did its laydown, the air was filled with this whirling buzz, buzzing stuff. The Israelis up, the Golder Meir, Moshe Dayan, uh, all the top Israeli people were in the, uh, the, the catwalk on the island watching this thing. They were the only ones that understood these were frags from the bombs. And they were it pulling, pulling people down. The rest of us Americans, we never heard this before. And we're going, right. hey, what is that? I what is that uh, whizzing sound going yeah. by? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and, but they, they knew that because they, knew. They, they live that shit every day. <laughs> yeah, they get every dragged day. all the time. <laughs> get down. <laughs> Everybody get down. <laughs> Can you imagine the headlines in the papers? Israeli Whoa. war cabinet killed by American Boy, Navy yeah. pilots. Naval, naval, uh, naval war demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> USS Nimitz wreaks havoc. <laughs> wreaks havoc. Uh, one of the things we did on this day, we went in, all the VIPs had commanders, et cetera, escorting them around. We went up on the flight deck to watch this thing, and the Israeli helicopter pilots were standing around. Nobody was talking to them. Nobody. We went over and stuck up a conversation with one who turned out to be Moshe Dayan's son. And we invited him down to the wardroom to have lunch with us. He invited us down to Tel Aviv that night to go to dinner with him. And we took him up on that, and he showed us one heck of a good time in Tel Aviv. How about that? Yeah. I can only imagine. That is cool. That is awesome. Okay. Uh, another wow. story I'll share with you, uh, because this goes to your theme song of crossing the Atlantic. Uh-huh. <laughs> we were in... At the end of cruise, one of our last ports was at uh, uh, in England, and uh, we were going out to operate in the North Sea on Fourth of July, okay. with a bunch of Brits on board, and going to do a, just a couple cycles of flying to impress the Brits. And I got detailed to B 
be in one of these cycles. And in the, in the Navy, if the sea air temperature is 55 or below, you're supposed to wear your poopy suit, which right. is your survival suit. Right? right? I was too big for a survival suit. So I was able to have a neoprene diving suit made for me to order. And I had all kinds of zippers on this thing so that when I wasn't in the water, I could unzip it and would cool. be comfortable yeah. instead of in the poopy suit where everybody sweats to death. In the hey, airport. just uh, just uh, to uh, uh, define this for all the listeners that don't know what this is, can you describe the, poop, the poopy suit? It is. Let me jump in before yeah. you do and say uh, to, to save some of them that are scuba divers. It's a dry yeah. suit. Yeah, it's a dry it's, suit. You've done some scuba yeah. diving dry suit. Yeah. It's, it's so, basically a big bag that you wear. Yeah. Your flight gear over it. It's horrible. It's got a yeah. neck seal, arm seals. It's yeah. boot. It's booted. You put it on, zip it up, and you're in a you're in a dry a cocoon. Suit. Yeah, you're yes. in a Ziploc bag. Yeah, <laughs> no water gets you. <laughs> but it's um, not it's not insulated. So no. you wear you would wear your, your uh, flight your, suit, normal stuff underneath it because you're yeah. going to sweat a lot. You need something to yep. absorb that. Yeah. Well, we're going out. It's a single cycle, which is an hour and forty five minutes, and I've got my wetsuit on and my flight gear over the top of it. And as we're going to man up, I thought for a moment, ah, damn, I didn't take a piss call. But I thought, <laughs> it's only an hour and 45 minutes. That's not a big deal. Yeah. So we go up, we man up, take the cat shot, and immediately the bladder low overfill light begins flashing. Of course. And so now we're flying around. And one of the things you do, especially in a crew airplane, you never admit you're uncomfortable or you have a problem. Because if you do, that's when the, the heckling starts in. Yeah. Oh, you can't hold it. You got yeah. old man bladder. Yeah, yeah right. Man. It and just starts. Yeah. And people begin swishing water around in, the, in, their, can, in their little canteen <laughs> things. And, that. and right. so. And, and, I, and I imagine when you're trying to go, it's probably, you know, loading up. Yeah, let's pull a couple yeah, G's oh, here it's, and, it's and unload but and they, get you to piss on your the shoes. The <laughs> didn't have a relief tube. It had baggies with a sponge in them. Yeah, piddle pack. Pill pack. Packs. You piss into the pill pack, the, the sponge absorbs the urine, you zip it up, you're good to go. Yeah. Well, and GQ on the on a carrier, they secure flushing water. So you can't use the urinals or anything else. So all the deckhands go in the S3s and steal the piddle packs to use. So by this part of the cruise, there were no piddle packs. So I was sitting there very uncomfortable. And after about 30 minutes, I would, hey, Guys, please check and see if you got a piddle pack by mistake in, uh, in your little cubby hole there beside your seat. Oh, why? You got to take a piss? No, no. I was just wondering. Then, you know, I was thinking of making a sandwich later and putting it in the baggie. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. it. it got, <laughs> that's my story, and I'm stuck with really it. really bad. And so finally I decided, okay, I'm going to take my helmet bag, and I'm going to go back to the e tunnel. <laughs> And I'm going to unzip everything and strip down and take a piss. So I go back there and I'm trying to, and it became one, I can't stand up straight in this thing because it's only about four and a half feet tall. And I'm trying to unzip thing. And it finally it got to the point. There's no way I'm, if I ever do get his highness out, it's probably going to be all over me and the, all the E&E stuff. And I said, you just got to resign yourself to. So I go back and sit down and say, okay. I'm, I'm going to get this out till we, we go back at the end of the cycle. Well, about that time, the boat calls up and goes, hey, the Norwegians have lost the Russian bear coming around the peninsula. 
we want to double cycle you so you and the uh no <laughs> you and the e3 can e2 can uh triangulate them with your esm gear and find them and immediately i broke out in a cold sweat because now it's another hour and 45 minutes till i can go back i am almost no. dying i mean why my bladder didn't burst i don't know as we're coming in, That's... I turned to my buddy. I'm in the right seat. I'm not flying. I'm just a rider. And I told my buddy, I said, if you bolter on this. If my bladder exploding doesn't kill you, I will. <laughs> we come into the break. He forgot to drop the hook. No. Yes. So I caught it, slammed it down. and said, asshole, you're going to pay for this. <laughs> asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Mistakes were made. We trapped the board. And before we... Before we even pulled back in the wire, I was out of this seat and had thrown open the door and was running across the flight deck, jumped it down into the catwalk. First door I come to, I throw open, run down the passageway. First head I come to is all taped up with masking. Of course. Tape. Of course it is. This, yeah, well. poor, this poor seaman <laughs> deuce is in there cleaning the head for inspection. I went there like a knife through hot butter. And <laughs> I've been zipping and throwing things off. And you can't come in here, sir. I got an inspection. I said, son, if, I, if my bladder doesn't kill you or you don't drown from this urine, <laughs> I will clean the head for you. Go get your chief. I'll explain it to him. And I must have pissed for about 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. Oh. That song oh. about crossing the uh, ocean. Yeah. 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 Trying yeah. to piss yeah. in a pip. Oh. Yeah. Right. It, exactly. It right. Cold sweat to my we, forehead. We've all been there. It's just so <laughs> yeah. that I love that song, but just because I'm there, I'm, yeah. I've done that. It's like, there, Oh, yeah. good Lord. Yeah. Here's yeah. something else. There was a guy, an LSO, a seven LSO that had this amorphous patch on a bunch of Brown with gold squiggly lines through it. And you never ask another guy what his patches are because you're going to be made fun of. After a couple of months, I couldn't take it anymore. I said, what the hell is that patch for? He said, oh, this is a patch you get awarded for taking a shit in your helmet bag in an A7. <laughs> Single airplane, having to take everything off because you got to shit. Yeah. 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 I, said, uh, well, that's impressive because yeah. uh, I don't know anybody that's ever done that. I, I know no. some guys that just poop their pants because, yeah. you know, you're strapped. You get, you're strapped in. Oh, yeah. my God. Uh, uh, that's impressive. Another story. I had a friend in the and VT7, that was an instructor who came from A1s in Vietnam. The A1 okay. could spend nine hours airborne. And it was such a big single-seat airplane, it had a door behind it. Sky Raider, right? Sky Raider. Yeah. yeah. They had a yeah. porta potty back there like you have in a camper. So if you ever needed to go, you just unstrap, put it on autopilot, and unstrap and go back in the back and take a dump. Uh-oh. Well, he's flying wing with on this mission. And he signals to the lead that he's got to go take a dump. And he gets the lead. He sets the airplane up. He goes back and straps everything, takes the dump, resuits, goes to open the door, and it's locked. What? He's locked himself in the back of the plane. Oh, shit. Yeah. Well, oh. that's when we found what the purpose of the survival knife is really for. He took his We're survival not. knife and cut his <laughs> way through the door. And it took him a long time to do that. In the meantime, the lead is flying over the top of him, looking upside down. You know, where is this guy? Is he just hiding on me? Where did he go? Oh. It took him 20 minutes to cut enough hole in it that he could reach in and unlock it from the other side. Oh. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> so, 
Well, none of that will compare then. We're getting close okay. to the end of our time together, but I, I want to, I'm going to put you on the spot okay. Garrett, and ask you, uh, since you're retired, um, to, well, fine is what? 99% boredom, 1% yeah. sheer terror. Uh, and, and people get on passenger airliners all the time. And for the most part, it's, it's unbelievably yeah. safe. Every now and then there's a close call. What's either the closest call or the funniest thing or the scariest thing that you recall from your civilian flying career? I had three fires on airborne. Three? Three, yeah. Two on the... Well, you were making up for your good luck charm. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) In the squadron. (laughs) My first one was in the Super 80, and it was... We were 35,000 feet going by Cleveland over the Great Lakes at uh, 11 o'clock at night. And all of a sudden, I smelled something. I turned to the, my FO. I said, did you just take your shoes off? Because it smelled like <laughs> wet gym socks. Yeah. And yeah, he yeah. said, no, did you just fart? I said, no. I <laughs> no. said, okay, let's do mask on, declare an emergency. We'll go. We're going to drop into Cleveland. It was an electrical fire in the first class galley. And, and it, civilian airplanes and then airliners all the air from the back is sucked into the cockpit and then down over the cockpit into the A&E compartment to be recycled. Right. Yep. Cool, yeah. cool the, uh, cool the electronic cool the, uh, yeah. avionics and send it overboard. And so we were pulling this electrical smoke and we dumped, we dumped it and landed in Detroit. And I did a, my only evacuation of my career I was sitting on the runway. We stopped and I thought, well, maybe it's over, maybe it's not. But on the other hand, why take the chance? So I did the easy victor, easy victor, easy victor. And we started throwing all eight of our passengers out the back. And then the captain's job is always to walk the airplane, make sure everybody gets out. Yeah. And in right. the Super 80, what's staring you is the tail cone exit, the back stairs exit. Right, right, right. The tail cone's gone. The slide. So I just continued through the back, went down the slide. And what they don't tell you is the slide, the tail cone is supposed to drop and roll away, but sometimes it doesn't, and the slide comes out and lands on top of it. So as I went down, I hit this big ski ski ramp <laughs> and ended up assholes over elbows trying to fly myself onto so I wouldn't hit on my back and landed, did a perfect four-point landing on the tarmac. <laughs> That's, that's funny, but it's not funny. So the only thing injured was your yeah. dignity. Yeah. <laughs> At least I didn't break my tailbone. <laughs> All right. So that's the first fire. Yeah. The second fire, I was flying with a gentleman who was the 7-6 Czech airman. Okay. Who called himself Mr. 767. Oh. Great. And he got a call from the back. I was his co-pilot. I had my cowboy boots off. I had my sleeves rolled up. I had my tie undone. And the flight attendant in the very back calls up and says, I think we got a fire back here. And he looks at me and says, why don't you go take care of it? And I said, well, I've got to get dressed and all that. Said, you're Mr. Yeah, 767. Why don't said, you go take I'm care of it? I'm going to go back there and I'm going to come back and tell you it's out. And you're going to go, well, I better go check. I said, so why don't we just cut to the chase and you go check? Yeah. There you go. Right <laughs> so he did. And it was, a, again, a galley fire. And you pull the circuit breakers it's electrical fire, so that takes care of it. We came back, and he goes, what do you think we ought to do? We're going scheduled San Diego to Chicago. I said, we've had a fire. I think we ought to put the plane on the ground and let the let them figure out if it's all out or not. I said, I'd hate to be over liberal Kansas in the middle of nowhere and have this thing start up again. Right. So we did. We did a dive into, 
into Phoenix and put it on the ground and checked it out. And then the passengers were mad at us because a bunch of them had Chicago Bear tickets that day. (laughs) Should have gone the day before. (laughs) And the last one was a 7-5 going into Chicago with me, the captain. And it was over. uh, We were just past St. Joe, which is something you guys are familiar with, at uh, 35,000 feet when... I got a call that the, there was a smell of an electrical fire in the, one of the lavatories. And so we did a dive in. And by the time we got down, we were close to Chicago. And we, I hit the three-mile point at Chicago at uh, 450 knots in the 7.5 at 2,000 feet. All right. And it dawned on me that maybe I better slow this thing down so we can actually land instead of doing a low pass by Chicago on fire. <laughs> Give me an air show. <laughs> so we, we, I didn't know the seven five had afterburners. <laughs> we threw everything out, slowed it down, landed, uh, got clearance to the gate. And as I'm pulling in to the gate area, gate tells us there's a 20 minute hold for our gates occupied. Oh, for the love and I of said, Hey, Ram Tower, if you had another guess. I said, okay, here's the deal. You got about two minutes to give me a gate because I'm going to pull in the middle of the, uh, between the turn and the, all the gate area, and I'm going to do an emergency evacuation with my passengers. And then you're going to not get no airplanes out of here for the next six hours. Yeah, so figure that out. Yeah, and all of a sudden, no, no, no. Oh, we got a gate for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a miracle. Yeah. Oh, man, that's funny. Well, Garrett, thank you so much. These are great stories. This is going to be a fun show. To well, put I out. didn't I think, think it was. Enjoy listening I just kind of had trepidations because they're listening to Captain Williams, who was a phenomenal oh, right. individual. And was his career fun? was amazing. It was fun. Thought, you know, right. I don't have much to tell anybody. Yeah. Give us the uh, give us the airplanes you didn't fly yeah. so we can yeah. get oh a short God. list out. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. And he's just so lackadaisical about it, you know. Oh, I know. He's yeah. talking about my, it. My Rio, my Rio jumped yeah. out, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, I just kept playing. Had to be in full after, had to be in full afterburner to keep it flying to, with a fire with fires. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank oh. you, hey, uh, Garrett. Thank you for your service uh, well, to our country you. and for being a naval aviator. Uh, we uh, we really appreciate that. Well, it was it was nice talking to even a couple of jarheads. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> twist it. Stick it in and twist it. That's okay. I would expect nothing less from a Navy man. Right. Well, I have to say it then. So uh, people, we always get the grief from the yeah. Navy. You know, the Marines were a part of the Department of the Navy. Yeah. Got their yes, paycheck we signed. The men's department. Or the men's department. No, we're the men's department. <laughs> 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 right back at you. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, well, thank you for your service. We also need to uh, thank none other than uh, Dave Hamilton over at the thank Mac you, Dave, Cab that takes good care of us and uh, helped us get this show up and running. So, big thanks to Dave. If you're, if you're at all tech oriented, want a good tech podcast to listen to, highly recommend the Mac Geek Gab. And he also does the Gig Gab if you're a musician and the business brain for running your own small business. He and another entrepreneur go through the problems and trials and tribulations of business. All right, here's the action you need to take, dear listener. Keep sharing. We've been doing that, and that's amazing, and our growth has been great. What hasn't been great is Rumble. We need 20 20 20 more. more. And then we won't have to pay. 
to be on Rumble. As soon as we hit the magic number of 100. Doesn't cost, hey, hey, repeat, does it cost anything? It costs you nothing but a few minutes of your time to sign up. And then, and then you'll get emails when we go live so that uh, you can tell. For instance, uh, right now on Rumble, we have uh, 18 folks watching us. People have been in and out the entire show uh, doing the live stream. You can watch us live stream. You can see all the mistakes, uh, see all the stupidity going on in the background, <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah. and have some fun as we do it live and see the, the, the truly the raw and the pimples and all, so to speak. Yeah. So, share, it, share it with your uh, friends. I certainly will. Yeah. So there I was dot us slash rumble. You can follow us also on Facebook. So there I was dot us slash Facebook. And the same holds true for Twitter. I need to get some tw- tweets up there, though. I haven't been doing that. I've been bad about that. Yeah, thank lately. you for doing that, by the uh, way. Shoot us some emails. All right. We've gotten some amazing emails. People that are aware of some of uh, the crashes that we've talked about. Some people that uh, uh, wrote in, uh, a gent wrote in, and I actually made a post of it. It's on our website. So there it was, .us. It's about two or three down now. It's not a podcast, but it, it's an email about his dad ejecting from an A4 off Marine, Hawaii. Marine and the newspaper yeah. articles. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a good yeah. story. It's a good, uh, it's a good article, too. Yeah. So shoot fig an email, fig at so there I was dot us or me, repeat at so there I was dot us. Thank you to our sponsor, Robin's Birdbraindesigns.com. If you need something customized, personalized in a gift format, this shows that you've put a lot of thought and effort into it. Uh, we have coasters with squadron logos in your call sign or airplane instruments in your tail number, anything along those lines. Custom etched coasters. She can etch just about anything, though. Your iPad, your laptop, coasters, Christmas decorations, Halloween, Easter's coming up. Reach out to robinsbirdbraindesigns.com and work with her to get you some amazing gifts for people. Or treat yourself to something. That music you hear in the background comes from our friends, the Dos Gringos, the two gents who give the Air Force a great name. (laughs) Lots of good music, lots of fun. Great songs. We, uh, yeah, we, we enjoy their music immensely and we're grateful that they share it with us. So until uh, next week, everybody stay safe and don't sit on the ejection seat handle. Oh, check six. (laughs) (laughs) Check six. I I would do. Yeah, exactly. I would do either. Check it. Stay safe and check six. Crossing the pond And you could see that I wasn't exactly fond Of all the shit I was wearing On that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse With all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down The North Atlantic, man, it's over Like the song says, Fig It's over (laughs) Thank you, gentlemen. So it takes a takes a second to spool up. Takes about yeah, takes about right. six years, I think, for the power to come up when you're that low. <laughs>